Hello, welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast, brought to you by the Rancho Cordova Film Office. Today we have a great show for you. It's a show that we taped about four weeks ago, but in honor of Veterans Day weekend, we are releasing this episode this week. And we are very happy to be speaking to Meryl Tengelsdahl. Meryl Tengelsdahl is an American retired career military officer who is the first and only black woman to fly the United States Air Force U-2 spy plane used for specialized high-altitude reconnaissance missions. She is one of five women and the only fourth black person to be in the U-2 program. She shares the plane's nickname, the Dragon Lady. Colonel Tengersdahl is a military veteran, aviator, and commander who served in both the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force. She served as Director of Inspections for the Air Force Inspector General from October 2015 through August 2017, retiring at the rank of United States Air Force Colonel. She also served in the Iraq War and the War in Afghanistan. We are delighted to be speaking with Colonel Tengerstall. My name is Charles Lego, and now on to the show. So you are the second United States Air Force Colonel that we've had on the show in two weeks. I feel honored then. A couple Thank of you. weeks ago, we had Colonel Robert Martinelli. He closed down Mather Air Force Base. He actually, his career started at Mather. He, was, he trained at Mather as a navigator. And then now we fast forward, he became a colonel and he closed it down. Yes, I, I had the opportunity to meet him. He seems like a wonderful gentleman. Yeah. We didn't get to speak very, uh, very long, but yeah, I mean, colonels meeting colonels, that's always a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> so before we start, let's give the listeners a very brief synopsis on who Meryl Tengelsdahl is. And I say brief because you've accomplished so much in your life. So I'm just going to be very brief here. Um, you were born in the Bronx in New York. You grew up the daughter of a single mother. And after high school, et cetera, you attended the University of New Haven. Yes. Um, you were a member of the university's ROTC program. You went on to join the U.S. Navy. You flew helicopters, and you later joined the U.S. Air Force. During your military career, you served in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and you became the first and so far the only African-American woman to fly, fly the Lockheed U-2. Correct. Which is a high-altitude reconnaissance aircraft nicknamed Dragon Lady. Yes. A moniker you go by now, right? Dragon Lady 788? That's correct. 788 is my pilot number. Right. And after more than 23 years of service to this country, you retired from the military with the rank of colonel. Yes. And leaving the military did not slow you down because today you're a motivational speaker, Absolutely. you're a fitness coach, you're an author, and you became a TV personality on the show Tough as Nails. Yes. And your book, which we'll talk about a little later, is called Shatter the Sky, What Going to the Stratosphere Taught Me About Self-Worth, Sacrifice, and Discipline. And we'll talk about your book a little later. So let's start at the very beginning. As we mentioned, you were raised by a single mother. Yes in New York. So talk us through your early life growing up and tell us about your mother. I'm always fascinated by the parents of accomplished people. So talk about your mother, high school, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So growing up, uh, grew up in the Bronx 
in a place called Co-op City. So shout out to Co-op City off of I-95 Northeast Bronx. Um, it's a it was a it's a big area that used to be it used to be called Freedom Land where they used to have uh, amusement parks and stuff. So they built all these skyscrapers on there and they it's it's a city within itself it has its own school system wow. it has uh now it has its own like plaza so i mean i walked to school from k through high school wow yes so at that time in the 70s because i'm a little older the majority of people the demographics was typically jewish and black so i remember people sitting on the bench who were jewish speaking yiddish so uh you know that was the mix that we were in. It was a very diverse community. And uh, so as I was growing up, by the age, by the time I was seven, my my dad was out of the picture. My mom used to work as a banker part-time and she was very good with money. So I was, I don't want to say I was a victim of this, but I was a victim of, remember back in the days at the banks that you had those uh, Christmas clubs that you have to pay a dollar wow. in for weeks at a time. For, to get 50 bucks right before Christmas to buy Christmas gifts. My mom was very financially savvy and understood. So she instilled that in you at an oh, early age. She definitely did. Yeah. She made me open a bank account when right. I was about eight or nine years old. Right. And uh, saving was definitely something, uh, you know, she's always like, save a little. If I got money for my birthday, I, w- I had to put half of it in the bank, wow. and then the other half I can spend yeah. as I saw fit. So, um, and it was just you, right? You had no brothers or sisters. No brothers or sisters. Yeah. So, um, so you were spoiled. Uh, growing up in the Bronx, no. Can you really be spoiled? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, she would try to get me things or have or go with my godmother or my aunt to. They would combine stuff if if there was something that she really saw a need for me right. to have. So, um, my mom was frugal, but she was smart about it. Basically, from there, um, my mom went from the bank after she separated from my dad to working at the post office. So she picked up a regular job, a government job, right. working at the post office. And so with most people, you start in, on the night shift. So with that, meant that I had to stay with my grandmother a lot. So I think it, at that point, that was very hard between seven and nine years old, staying with my grandmother a lot and not with my mom. But my mom knew she had to make ends meet, right. and this was a way for her to move up. Um, during that time, as I was growing up, I had a huge fascination with science fiction. So I loved uh, Star Trek. Star Trek is a huge staple in my mind that I remember. And that's what gave me the idea to one day I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to explore strange new worlds. I wanted to be an adventurer. I wanted to fly a space shuttle, fly the Enterprise. And so at about seven or eight, I decided this is what I want to be. And my mom, to her uh, benefit, really didn't tell me one way or another, didn't really encourage me to do it or not to do it. Um, there were just a lot of outside pressures to begin with because what girl wants to be in the 70s an right. astronaut, right? So right. there were a lot of societal norms at that time. So whether it was, oh, you have to wear a dress. I didn't like dresses. Oh, you have to play with Barbies. I definitely did not like Barbies. G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip was the bomb. Plus, he had bendable arms. Right. Um, so, you know, my mom just let me 
for the most part, be who I wanted to be. Sometimes right. she's like, why Why do you play with the boys all the time? Why do you do all that? Well, you wanted to be Mr. Chekhov or Mr. Zulu, right? I did, I did. I wanted to, I wanted to fly. You want to be uh, whatever. I used to watch that Star Trek in England, the William Shatner one, right? Yes, the first one. yes. And um, uh, just as a side note, I told you earlier that I manage actors. I managed um, Sally Kellerman, and Sally Kellerman was on the pilot of... The first Star Trek. Oh, the Menagerie. Yeah, she was the she was on that show, <laughs> and I used to go to Star Trek conventions with her. I yes, and I met them all there, Mr. Oh. Zulu, Mr. Chekhov, all of them. Oh, um, I have been to my share of yeah. Star Trek conventions. Anyway, we digress. You wanted, <laughs> you wanted to be Mr. Chekhov or Mr. Zulu? I did. I wanted to. I wanted to fly. I didn't want to be the communications officer. I didn't want to be the science officer. Right. I wanted to pilot. Right. I wanted to put the right. aircraft or put the shuttle where it needed to go. Where did that come from, do you think? Where does a seven-year-old girl from the Bronx <laughs> want to be a pilot? And not only a pilot, but an astronaut. Well, I just think it was the fascination of there could be other life out there to explore, to look at. I've always, I like the adventure. Right. I saw James T. Kirk, this man who commanded this diverse group of people right. to explore the unknown and to um, whatever they encountered, they would take all these life skills with them and they would figure it out. Now, if you had a red shirt, you were dead because you were a security person, right. but everyone else used these life skills to figure out things to help them get over this obstacle, this problem or to solve it or whatever it was. And that to me was huge. So, at seven, when I said I was going to be an astronaut, I had this. I built this framework in my head based off Star Trek. I said, "Well, you know, if you want to be on the Enterprise, you have to graduate from Starfleet Academy. Well, I have to go to college, right? Right. So that translated to that. Um, if I wanted to fly the Enterprise or the shuttle, then I had to be a pilot first. So those were my two big goals that I had to do, and I figured out." I don't know everything else, but as I go on this journey, I'm going to look at everything that I do in life as a challenge to build this unique skill set okay. that one day will inform my choices when I became an astronaut. So my point with that is to, to think like that, you have to be very disciplined. So did, did that come from your mother, your grandmother, your aunt? I mean, who taught you to be so focused? Focus is the word. Maybe not discipline, but focus. Yeah, so focus my grandmother she was the type of woman um she was older but she worked at the senior citizen home and she showed up every day whether however she felt and she did work my mom went from being a banker to working for the post office she did what she needed to be done so i i look at them as their work ethic as you know these women worked hard right and so why not do the same? I mean, right, right. if they took care of business, yes, they took care of business. So, um, there's no question about how I need to conduct myself. Right. So high school, what was that like? High school. <laughs> Were you a good student? <laughs> I was. I was a very good student, yeah. but I was mouthy. Yeah. Um, I was a mouthy kid that got into trouble with my mouth. I was on. I was on the bowling team. I was on the softball team. I was on the basketball team. I was. Because um, you were very sporty back then, right? I was, I was very athletic, so yeah. I had run track. I heard, you, I heard you say that you can throw a javelin, 
X amount of yards and hit someone between the eyes. I could. Uh, I could. Yeah. I was in the track team um, before I became a teenager. So I, my mom put me in that because I had a lot of energy. By the time I got to high school, I would do every sport. I was on the math team. I was on, I was like this Jack or Jill of all trades. Um, I just, again, when I looked at a situation, if I found it interesting and I had time to do it, I would do it right. because it was helping right. build my skill set. Right. So I played in band. I played uh, in high school. I went from trumpet to mellophone to French horn. Wow. Um, I just I did a lot. I, I worked at the planetarium squad. But with that, I still got into a little bit of trouble. Yeah. So by my senior year um, in this. Well, let's backtrack in the in the summer times, I would take a lot of summer programs for science and math and a lot of STEM programs. One at the University of uh, Binghamton up in uh, upstate New York. I would go to other high schools in the summertime. But I took enough classes that by the time I had my senior year, I could have graduated in my 11th year, but I wanted to enjoy my senior year. I had a lot of time on my hands, so. Wow. I did a lot of things I wasn't supposed to do. And then you end up at university, yes. New Haven. Yes. So tell us about your college years. Yeah, my college years was a continuation of my senior year in high school. So um, I enjoyed, I ended up going to the University of New Haven, one, because it was a private school, smaller classes. They had a good engineering program. I went to the school uh, as an elect, um, in the electrical engineering right. program. They also had an Air Force ROTC. Right. I was interested in doing the military. And it was also far enough from my mom that she couldn't come and surprise me, but close enough that I could take the Metro North back home. So University of New Haven is in Connecticut, right. but it's close to- I love the, New Haven. It is a beautiful it's place. It's a beautiful place. It's yeah. a beautiful place. I spent time there. And if you live there, you drop on the train, you're in New York in an hour and a half. Yeah, it's- Right it, in 42nd Street. Yeah, it's very simple. Yeah. You have Yale down there. Right. There's a um, Quinnipiac, which is some other, there's yeah. a whole bunch of small colleges. Yeah, yeah, so no, it's a huge- it's a great, yeah. Yeah, it's a huge college town, which means there's a lot of parties. Yeah. So my first couple of years, um, I was in the engineering program. I, I smiled because I probably did more partying than studying, but it didn't affect me until my junior year when I failed my first class. And so I had, why engineering? Was that with the view of, of what you wanted to do in the future? Yes. Yeah. So if I wanted to be a pilot, um, again, I went into electrical engineering and not aerospace or aeronautical. Um, I was kind of flipping back and forth. But the reason why I went to a, did electrical was because in high school, I had done programs at other universities. And one of them was in the, I did some research with a professor who was a professor in electrical engineering. So we did what was called thin, thin film deposition. Sorry, now that people are going to get bored. But it's basically a vacuum system type technology. And they use it for semiconductors now and everything. But I was doing that when I was about 16 years old. Wow. So I was familiar with yeah. that. So when it came time to choose, I chose electrical due to the digital aspect component. I mean, back then when I was going to school, remember the 8088 computer, um, computer was out. I was building computers. I liked the digital aspect. It was fun for me. So that's why I stayed with electrical. Right. And there was a fallback. If I did not become a pilot, I can do stuff in electrical engineering. So ROTC at unit, what does that mean? What were you? What What was your military? What do you do militarily wise? So Air Force, <laughs> Air Force ROTC. It was um, 
it was a satellite unit from University of Connecticut. So UConn was the main area. Right. So we would just do basic things like basic military history, um, learn how to march in formation. We would run uh, mock PT tests. And look, I love the Air Force. I ended up in the Air Force. But at that time when I did ROTC, it wasn't for me. Right. It It didn't have the... I don't want to say the rigor, but the roughness that I yeah, was looking yeah, yeah. for. No, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. sorry, guys. The Air Force is very, <laughs> the Air Force is very, you always think the Air Force, what, what do they do? Well, I mean, they, they're the ones that win all the wars, right? Because the, the air power of this country is immense. Right. The air power is immense, but you'll have now all the Army people right now in this podcast right. have lost their minds saying, right. ground power is the best. Right. So it's a mixture. So, um, but I will tell you, no one does it better. Yeah, for air power than the United States Air Force. So, I agree. So, um, yeah, we're we're forced to be reckoned with. So, you, how did you come to join the military though? But did you one morning say I'm going to be in the military? So, I will tell you, my junior year when I failed that class, I stopped doing ROTC. I stopped. I was playing basketball. I was doing all these other curricular activities because I knew the goal of college was to get a degree, right? Right. So, and not spend a lot of time. Because I wanted to be an astronaut. Right. So uh, when I was done and when I graduated, um, my choices were still um, either Navy or Air Force. I had I had drilled into two branches of service. Right. Um, I had spoken to a friend of mine who was actually a security person in Co-op City. And he was talking to me about the Navy I went down to Pensacola because I was dating someone at the time who was down in Pensacola. I went to the uh, museum down there, which is beautiful. And they said, hey, most I was looking at the astronaut list, and I looked, and most of them were naval aviators. And I said, okay, I'm going to join the Navy. So when I got back to New York, I talked to recruiters. Little did I know at that time there's a difference between enlisted recruiters those who go to basic training right. and become enlisted and officer recruiters, those right. who go to officer candidate school, right. officer training school. I talked to the recruiters in New York and they didn't have any billets for aviation. And uh, they kept telling me no. And they said, well, we have this, this, this. I'm like, I'm not interested. And finally I talked to an army recruiter and they said, you want to fly? Well, you can come fly helicopters with us. So I looked into it and I said, oh, helicopters, not my first choice, but again, I'm looking to move the ball down the field. Right. And I said, okay, I can fly helicopters first and then maybe later on somehow figured out how to transition out. So I actually took the ASVAB for the Army. I was a day away from swearing in and going to warrant officer school. And my boyfriend at the time who was stationed in Yuma, Arizona, called a recruiter in San Diego and he he connected us both with me and the recruiter in San Diego and the recruiter in San Diego, Navy recruiter. He said, if you can get out to San Diego and take the test and pass, we will get you a pilot slot. So I told the army, thanks, but no thanks. I got on the next week. I was on a five day bus trip to San Diego to go take the test. I do not recommend taking a bus trip across country. No, especially in this day. It was dangerous then. Yeah. Yeah. My mom's still mad at me about a Greyhound. That. I took a Greyhound yeah, bus from yeah, New York yeah. to actually past San Diego to Yuma wow. just to turn yeah, around yeah, and go no, back. I know you. I lived in San Diego. Yeah. Yes. So um, I went out there. I took the test. I passed. They put my package in, and 
a couple of months later, I came home, and then by the summer, I found out I made it to. You're in the Navy. I'm in the Navy. I made it to Officer Candidate School. Uh, wow. Officer Candidate School. So, you join the Navy. You go to you go to boot camp, right? I would imagine. Well, Officer Candidate School. So that's different. Oh. So for those who know the movie Officer and a Gentleman, yeah. remember? Yeah, yeah. Louis Gossage. Yeah, my drill instructor looked just like him, yeah. just twice as mean. Right. <laughs> he was. Um, he used to be. Uh, I'll never forget it. Um, Gunny Sergeant Shine, United United States Marine Corps, Class Zero Eight Nine or Four. Um, this man, he used to be a sniper, and uh, he was ter- he was absolutely mean, terrifying. Really mean, or just mean to make you better? He, no drill instructors. <laughs> maybe some of them are, but they're they're mean to make you better. They're yeah. there to weed out right, those who are not serious. Right. And um, but I mean, unfortunately, he passed away. I believe in twenty twenty. Um, but if he was here today, I'd give my life. Yeah, to him in a heartbeat, right. like for him, right. you know, in a heartbeat. So, so he shaped you. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. he built the foundation of all of us in that right. class. So, um, yeah, I mean, you talk about true discipline and doing things. Yeah, but that man was absolutely terrifying during the time I was right. going through. <laughs> so you joined the Navy with the view of being an officer right off the bat. You have to be to be a pilot. You have to be an officer. officer to be right. an officer, you have to have a four year degree. Unless you're doing the Army, you need for the warrant officer program. Right. It's a two-year degree. Right. So you end up straight to be a pilot, a helicopter pilot? Um, no, you go to flight school first. Yeah. So when I, the one good thing about officer candidate school, it's called direct commissioning for people who want to have this knowledge, direct commissioning, you will be given your slot before you sign up, before you swear oh, in. Oh, okay. The downside is if you do not finish officer candidate school, then you have to enlist in the military. So failure was not an option for me, right? So it was like, no, I'm not, there's no way. And it's, you know, because that's my dream. So once you're done with officer candidate school, you go to flight training. And I know they don't call it aviation pre-flight indoctrination anymore. They call it another thing, but it's basically, it's basically a six-week course of um, a lot of swimming, um, you do your dunker stuff, you do classes like engines, weather, aerodynamics, you do your basic classes, and then you have to do the obstacle course. Um, I'm sure it's similar. Yeah. Remember, this is, I mean, this is almost 30 years ago. Right. And the whole goal behind that is to weed out people that cannot time manage. Right. That's basically it. Right. Once you're complete with that, um, then you'll go to pilot training or flight school. And it's either in Pensacola or you go to Corpus Christi, Texas. So I ended up going to Corpus Christi, Texas, flying fixed-wing aircraft. We all right. start right. fixed-wing. Uh, nowadays, they fly to T-6 Texan II. When I was going through, we flew the T-34C Mentor, which is a single-engine turboprop plane. The T-6 is also single-engine, but it's just more powerful. And then you fly for about six months. At the end of that, you're graded. You know, you're graded for every flight, all simulators. And the class that's graduating... They compare scores and whatever is available at that time, whether they have helos, jets, um, props, they rack and stack everyone and they try to give them their choice. And once those choices are gone, they give you need to the Navy. So if you're flying fixed wing in the Navy, mm-hmm. um, are you going on, do you, are you landing on carriers and stuff or, it, so, or is it on just on the ground? So it depends. So you have um, E2C2s, which go in the carrier. But you've done that? No, I have not. No. So I, I went helicopters. Yeah. 
So, and then you have your jets that right, are right. flying the carriers. So, um, and then helicopters, I I went to, once I selected helicopters, I went to back to Pensacola to do advanced training in helicopters. Right. So I flew what's called the TH-57 right. and, um, you know, completed that training. That's and, a powerful helicopter. Uh, it's a small, I mean, it's a Belgian oh, no. Ranger. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, the one a, you ultimately flew, the one with all the weapons. Yeah, and, I went to the SH-60 Bravo right. at the time, which is now the Romeo version. I uh, went out to Mayport, and um, it's like a Black Hawk, but yeah. it's heavier. Yeah. So the the mission of the Navy is anti-submarine warfare is the primary mission. So we did anti-submarine warfare uh, with torpedoes and sonda buoys. We can also, our system was like a plug and play. So we can put Hellfire missiles on there. At that time, we also had access to Penguin missiles, which we don't anymore, or FLIR, which is used to laze targets. So that was anti-surface. And then we could do search and rescue like every other helicopter platform. And then sometimes we have night vision goggles. So we were every day for the helicopter, which I liked, there was a different mission set. Right. And you had to have, you know, a multitude of skill sets, right. which was which was really fun. Helicopters are awesome. And you ended up in the Middle East, right? The first Iraq? I did. Um, in, 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 you know, incursion? We started... Um, I started my first deployment in the military, so I did the first long cruise in 1997. Uh, we were at the North Arabian Gulf. We were actually going to do a Mediterranean tour, but that, at the time, Saddam, when he was alive, he was being a little mm, irritating. Mm -hmm. So they sent, I was with the uh, George Washington Battle Group. I was uh, on the Normandy, which is... Uh, a cruiser, uh, CG-60, and then we were relocated up to the North Arabian Gulf for the remaining, I think, five months, so we stayed up there. So wow. we did operations in the North Arabian Gulf and the KAA. Uh, we did combat you know, missions, support missions. We did sort of reconnaissance missions, which feeds into what I've started flying later on. Right. So we did we did a basic everything. And what rank are you here? I was in Navy... Lieutenant Junior Gray, so Lieutenant JG at the yeah, time. Yeah, I pretty much finished flight school, um, pretty quickly, just the way it worked out. Um, right under two years, so I was still an ensign when I went to the SH sixty community. Right. Yes. Um. So tell us about um, the whatever helicopter. I'm not into all the terminology. <laughs> That's okay. I call it the powerful one. So the powerful us, one. Yeah, so so the tell S us about that one. So the SA-60 Bravo, the Seahawk helicopter, similar to the Black Hawk. It does, it's heavier than the Black Hawk. Um, and that's the Army Black Hawk helicopter. So it, um, again, we do, we were doing at that time anti-submarine warfare. So we're sub hunters. Typically we work in conjunction with the P-3 Orion aircraft to do sub hunting. So we could do either what they call passive, just dropping sauna buoys and listening, or we can do active where we can drop a sauna buoy and actually send out signals to hit off of metal objects or other oh. objects and come back to us. Oh, okay. We also had what was called a, a magnetic anomaly detector or MAD system, where it was this big monstrosity that would hang off our plane and we'd fly over the ocean. And if, it, if we contacted the big metal surface, i.e. a sub, it would send an indication to the cockpit. So it was kind of fun. Wow. So we, we had fun. Uh, did you ping um, you, you, submarines? You personally? You pinging submarines? Like, did you find submarines? 
When you put your things out, did you find them? Well, I mean, if we're doing training missions, yeah, we, we oh, found those things. But right. I mean... But in real life? Well, that's... I, <laughs> I don't... I don't I'm trying to just think of what I could say and what I can't yeah, say. Yeah. I would no, just we'll, say we had the we'll capability. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we'll had the capability yeah. to do that. Right. No, you, you don't have to. But I mean, we can find subs and we can find, you know, large objects in the water. So. Right. Um, and once you find them, what? You, you call it in and say, hey, we found one. No, uh, we didn't. I mean, a lot of times it was training missions. Yeah. And other times if we identified something, we just reported back. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of other countries have submarines. Sure. And, um, and some submarines are really, really quiet. Right. So, you know, we have a crew. You have two pilots in the front, two um, helicopters, uh, two helicopter pilots in the front. And then you have an air crewman in the back who can actually tune up sauna buoys and actually listen wow. on the ocean floor. And, and they're trained to hear propeller blades. They're trained wow. to hear. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're pretty cool. It's pretty neat. And um, I heard you recount a story. I think it was a training mission where things did not go well. No, that yeah, was a... that was pretty like it was hairy when I heard you tell that. I don't know where it was that you told that story, but it was your instructor, right? He almost got you killed. Right. So it was it was my one of my first missions as a you know when I, when I went to let's backtrack when I go to the H sixty it takes about another year of training in that aircraft to be proficient. Right. So once that happened, um, I went to my f first training deployment. It was a two-week, we call it workup cycles. And it was one of my first sorties at night. Um, we were doing a seven-hour mission, and I was with this other pilot who was the aircraft commander. At that time, I was called a helicopter second pilot because I was just trained up. And he was in the right seat. I was in the left seat. And so he's the, in charge. He's in charge. Yeah. He's the aircraft commander. Right. So the purpose of this flight was to find a submarine. It was a training sortie that was hidden. And we can use, we had to visually ID it at night, which was kind of, now that I look back, it's kind of silly. But we had to visually ID it by throwing a chem light or smoke, whatever. The air crewman in the back had it. And so we're finding it. And we've tracked the sub. We know where it's at. But we couldn't visually see it. So at that time, we can only go to 200 feet because it was nighttime. And a few weeks ago, there was a crew that had a mishap that took a very perfectly good aircraft and put it in the water because they descended below 50 feet. They got disoriented. So now we were, we were restricted to 200 feet at night. And we were frustrated that we couldn't find this sub. So my aircraft commander suggested that we do what's called a coupled approach, which basically you could do an automatic approach to a hover in a helicopter. You could do it to 50 feet and be stable. Well, we kind of skirted the rules because we weren't flying, we were doing a coupled approach. So we were like, oh, this sounds good. As a second pilot, I went in with this, which was not the best idea. So he said, okay, uh, break out the checklist and once we do the checklist, we'll go to the, to the, we will do a coupled approach to a hover. So I break out the checklist. As I'm breaking it out, I can't find it. It's dark. I have my lights on, but I'm, I'm flustered for some reason. I don't know why, but I was. And I couldn't find the checklist. And my aircraft commander was getting a little bit impatient. 
And as I was looking down, my head is down, looking for the checklist, my aircraft commander starts a descent, but he does not tell me, nor does he tell the air crew member who's looking outside the side of the helicopter. And it's pitch black. And you're over water. We're over water. So there's like nothing. There's so, nothing. Yeah. There's nothing. And there wasn't much of a moon or anything. Right. And so he's descending. The two of us don't know. And then for some reason, the helicopter bumps. I, I don't know. Just something's weird. And I look up. And the first thing as a pilot, when you look up at from having your head in the cockpit, you look up at the altitude. And we were descending through 20 feet. So that's not a good situation. So I yell power. I grab the collective and I pulled it as fast and as hard as I could to get away from the water. The air crew member did not even know we were descending because it was pitch black. The pilot, the aircraft commander, somehow got disoriented. He started the descent. He didn't say anything, but he was disoriented and he didn't fest he just was unaware. Their crew member looked back inside at his digital display, and we we ended, we stopped descending at around six feet. From the water? That's correct. Whoa. Yeah, that's not cool. So it's like from here to the floor. No, that's eight feet. That's eight feet. Wow. Yes, if it was a, I mean, if there was a waves that night, wow. yeah, that might have been a wrap for us. So. Wow. Yeah. So you weren't pleased? I think we were all too shocked. Yeah. And you know, this was, I mean, again, this was probably the first of my training missions. I mean, I had probably less than five under my belt. And so that night was, we were just halfway through our seven hour sortie. So right. we didn't talk to each other the rest of the night. Like right. it was total silence in the yeah. aircraft. And I remember once we landed, typically you debrief, but I think we were too shocked. Right. We all just went to bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was wow. one of those. And, and it was... I mean, it was a huge learning point for me. So what lesson did that teach you? Uh, don't become complacent and put your trust in someone right. who is, who is you know, the title of aircraft commander. You need to always pay attention, keep your right. hand on a swivel. If we had gone in the water that night, it would have been, it would have been all our faults. Right. Like it would have just, it was, it wasn't necessary. Right. And so... Um, Cockpit communication and crew coordination is absolutely key. We brief it all the time. And as an aviator um, and people who are in aviation know this all the time, whether you're doing a mission, a training mission, even military people, you brief the mission and you go as planned. Right. And don't do anything out of the ordinary to you people. Keep them informed. So right. it was a huge learning lesson for me, and that did not happen again. Right. How long were you in the Navy for? Ten years? I was in for about ten years. Yeah. So then yeah. the whole ten years you were well once you got into helicopters, that was your thing the whole time? No, it oh, was no? not. No. Um, oh. So what happened after the helicopters? Yeah, so I flew helicopters for four years. Yeah. Um after my initial training. Yeah. So I did a I did two long cruise deployments, one to the Middle East, one to uh South America, which yeah. was great. Um after that I got a job. I got picked up to be an instructor oh. um, in the T-6 community. So the T-6 Texan II was a new aircraft that both the Navy and the Air Force co-bought together. And they were going to have a training squadron in Moody Air Force Base. And they were going to train about 25 Navy students a year and Air Force people. So they picked four instructors from the Navy to go teach over there. 
and I was one of them. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it was pretty. It was a pretty. That was cool. As a very great honor. So, I got to go back, leave helicopters, and the reason why, if you read my book, there was a, a lot of things going on at that time that made me very upset about the helicopter community in terms of my, um, just my career advancement. So I wanted to look for another job that was joint-ish in a way and that I could fly something different. And so my friend and mentor at the time who worked as an assignments, a, detail, a detailer at Millington, found this job for me and said, I remember he called me up. He goes, um, I don't know what this job entails. It's a flying job. I'm not sure. Do you want it? And I... I just took the leap. I said, yes. Yeah. So here's where it got interesting for me with you. Um, because you, I heard you say that you wanted your resume to look good with the view of becoming a, an astronaut, right? Yes. That never went away, becoming an astronaut. Working for NASA, going up to the moon or wherever you were going to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and you liken that as improving your brand. Now, that's something I understand. Obviously, I'm in the business world. So... That was you improving your brand. Yes. Yeah. It, one step closer to to getting to your goal. Right. To being an astronaut. So never, I never used those terms because back then we didn't talk about no, brands. Didn't talk about brands, but it was very the way you described that, that that left a mark on me. That was very well put the way you said that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's it was to me it was about when you're working in such a when you're trying to get jobs that are so high and there's not that many people that do it, how do you set yourself apart right. from everyone else? Right. And so flying H-60s, a lot of pilots did it, even though it's a small group of people. A lot of pilots did it. But flying the T-6 and being a T-6 instructor and one of four, right. initial cadre, right. yeah. that's... Set you above, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's something. And to be good at that and to be good at working with the Air Force and right. to train both uh, there was something very satisfying about putting or for me putting my my dna the way my thinking and my teaching and my flying skills on a group of students that would one day be commanders right. and be these other people and i still keep in touch with some of these students to Today? this day oh wow. yeah wow one one guy i met uh the beginning of this year when i was at the women in um women in aviation he saw me, and he is a commander now. And um, in my book, I talk about a student that puked in the aircraft with me after eating a ham and cheese sandwich and how I was mad at him because of that. It was him, wow. and he was doing really well. And he, you know, he was married. He had two kids, and he's just like, I'll never forget all the stuff you taught me. So, 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 two questions on your training thing. So, what rank are you now? At um, I was a Navy lieutenant, so yeah. I had just gotten picked up for. While I was there training students, I got picked up for lieutenant commander in yeah. the Navy. Okay. And training, I mean, we can't get it. We'll be here all day and tomorrow. But <laughs> training, are you sitting next to them? So the T6, yeah, T6 is. Or behind them? Or yes, whatever? T6 is um, tandem yeah. aircraft. Right. So the students typically in the front, and instructors in the back. In the back. Yes. And can you take control? Yes, there's a stick. There's, yeah. yeah um, so if something goes wrong, like a driving instructor, right? You yes. You take control? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You could take, I mean, they can try to force it from you, but. That wouldn't be good. 
No, especially if we land and we're both alive, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so now let's, because your story is so, we could be here for a week. So you're now in the Navy. Tell us about the switch to the Air Force. How did that come about? So I was coming on the end of my service commitment to the Navy. And I knew at that point I was going to make test pilot school in the Navy. That was a requirement. NASA, if you want to pilot the space shuttle, you have to go to test pilot school. And so I was looking on, what am I going to do next? And I was going to actually get out and go back and get my PhD in something. But at that time when I was flying T-6s, I had an Air Force instructor concurrently with my now husband that was telling me like, hey, maybe you want to go to a different program in the Air Force. Your husband now was your instructor? No, my sorry. Oh. My husband, we were dating at the time. Yeah. And I was telling him like, hey, oh, I'm going to oh, get out. Oh, I'm I gonna see, get out. yeah. And he's like, well, maybe you should go U-2s. This is a story he tells me. I don't remember right, this, right. but anyway. Yeah. And at the same time, my my commander that I was working for was like, hey, you should come join the Air Force. Come fly, you know, B-52s, B-2s, F-117s, U-2s. And I was like, hmm, let me check out the U-2. And so I looked at the U-2, and I looked at what they did. I actually flew out there in a T-6 uh, for a weekend and checked out the community. And, you know, once I got out there, I was like, man, these are a great group of people. Right. The aircraft is interesting. Right. The mission is similar to what I did in helicopters. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I, I just like the people there. Uh, the brotherhood and sisterhood were just really, really cool, just different. So for those who don't know, and I don't, how do you, one day you're in the Navy, mm -hmm. which is one department of the military, <laughs> and then you go to the Air Force. Like, how do you do that? Do you quit the Navy and join the Air Force? Absolutely. So you have to do it in two ways. One is... You have to do it administratively. So there's what's called an inter-service transfer request. And all branches of service have that in their instruction. Oh, okay. okay. So I had to fill that out. And, so it's a fairly easy procedure. Uh, I wouldn't say that, but I filled it out and I sent it to the Air Force. And then the Air Force actually rejected me. I wish I had kept the rejection letter. Oh. But in the meantime, I was working to put a package in for the U-2 because the U-2 has their own interview process. Right, and we're going to talk about that. Right, so... Yeah, because it was fascinating. So I put in a package for the U-2. The U-2 community reached back and said, we would love for you to come out and interview. So I had to go back to Air Force Personnel Center, which is called AFPC, and uh, I said to them, hey, I know you rejected me. However, I have this invitation to go fly to U-2. Right. And <laughs> I remember the personnel was like, ah, oh, figures... So they said, look, if you pass the interview and get it accepted into the U2 community, we will accept you into okay. the Air Force. So now we get to part two of this show. <laughs> um, so part two, you become the first African-American woman to fly the U2. Yes, sir. And for those who don't know, and I certainly didn't until a month ago when I met a U-2 pilot, not you, but another one, yeah. which got me interested to get an idea of what this aircraft is. So the U-2 is a single jet engine aircraft flown by the U.S. Air Force. It flies at very high altitudes on the edge of space, which is kind of cool. It was first flown by the CIA, which I did not know, but that's also pretty fascinating. Yes. And then taken over by the U.S. Air Force. And the purpose of the U-2 aircraft is to provide real-time imagery and electronic surveillance over enemy territory. 
So basically, you're not going to say it, but I'm going to say it. Basically, a spy plane. How does a young girl from the Bronx become the first black female to fly this aircraft? Just a passion for flying and wanting to be better and and be challenged and to do something good for her country. Right. And all these things culminated, you know, the desire to go into space. I looked at the YouTube program saying, wow, if I can fly above 70,000 feet, do this mission in support of an organization, you know, the military and, and, you know, defend my country, man, this is a win-win. Right. And also on a small part, NASA will probably look at this because at that time there were less than a thousand pilots. And even today, in 68 years, there's only been a little over 1,100 pilots that have wow. flown this aircraft. And this aircraft is, it's not for everyone. It's its a—it's definitely in the Air Force inventory, one of the most challenging aircraft right. to land, to fly. It it's it's maybe subsonic, which yeah. means it doesn't go right. It doesn't so go mock. We're gonna talk. So yeah. about a month ago, when I first met you, <clears throat> I met an active duty U two pilot and and an air show event. Uh, the air show is happening right here in Rancho Cordova next week. This coming up, um, and we'll get into that. But he briefly described during his talk um, what it's like to pilot the aircraft. So we have a little bit more time. So tell us, what does it feel like to fly at 70,000 feet, which is, if I'm not mistaken, is probably double the height of a regular, because when I'm on a plane going to New York, you know, oh, hello, folks, we're now at 35,000 feet. Correct. And they're they're at the top. But you're double that. Um, What, like, how does the human body take that? How, How do you do that? So the human body above 63,000 feet won't take it well without a pressure suit or suit that's protecting you from the environment. So Armstrong's lines, about 63,000 feet, not enough pressure in the altitude to keep blood within you. So that is problematic. So imagine flying for, in the the U-2, we fly for hours on end. We fly over eight, nine-hour missions. Sitting there by yourself in a suit um, in this aircraft that's the size for the older audience such as myself of a particular age a telephone booth or for some people the size of a smart car right so you're sitting there for hours not doing much movement you know can you move in this suit is it flexible it's not flexible enough it's so for every movement you do you're going to generate a lot of heat and that's with the suit not inflated the suit is designed to inflate in case of cockpit depressurization. Ah. So when I flew the aircraft, the cockpit um, altitude in the aircraft was at twenty, about 29,000. Uh, now it's at 15,000. But if the cockpit depressurizes to above 70, the suit inflates to keep your body at 35,000 feet. So if it inflates, imagine the Michelin men in a, yeah. in a phone booth right. trying to so turn. you puff out. You puff out. And if it inflates, are you thinking, uh-oh, or do you know it's about to inflate? Do you know if there's going to be a problem? If it's a rapid depressurization in the aircraft, it's it's instantaneous just about because wow. we, we practice that. But if it's if it's something that's happening over time, we'll get warning indications before that. So hopefully as a pilot, depending on what you're doing in the mission, you're going to start right. descending, yeah. you're going to take action, you're going to do stuff. 
So I heard you describe the process to become a U2 pilot, and it's, it's a fairly complicated process, right? It's a series of interviews that you have to go through? Yes, it's a two-week interview process. The first week is a lot of, um, <clears throat> you're talking to a lot of uh, just people in the program. You're talking to the commanders. So you have a training squadron and an operational squadron. So you're talking to the commanders, the director of operations. You're talking to the wing leadership. You're... You're trying to figure out if this is a suitable place for you because I always joke about the YouTube being the community of the land, land of the not quite right. I mean, there has to be something, and I say this in a good way, right. something has to be a little bit off with you if you don't mind sitting by yourself for hours on end with no bathroom, right? trying to keep your body in check. I mean, you could do number one for audiences, but number two, you can't. Right. And to be able to fly alone not really talking to anyone you have to be in a a very strong mental space and that's what i'm going to talk to you about because <laughs> yes. it's very fascinating to me <laughs> yes so so um, let's talk about the training process so yes. so you're accepted now what what do they do now so you start so you fly so that first week you talk to people the second week if you make it past the first week of interviews and the claustrophobic test and all that the second week they give you three flights um, in those three flights, they want to see your learning curve. And if you have the correct learning curve, because we only do about 20 flights before you're ready, you go on your mission flights or you do your mission upgrade. Um, if they feel that you're ready and you have instructors who are doing it, they'll ask you, do you want to be part of the community? If you don't, they'll say thanks but no thanks. So that second week, you're doing flights in the aircraft. And, and they don't have many of U2s. There's only one or two, as I understand it, with two seats, right? Yes, there. Are, I believe there are four two-seaters. Don't four, quote, yeah. yeah, please don't quote no, me no, on no, that. No, 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 yeah. There, there's so a, there's a guy sitting behind. So there's someone is doing what you used to do yes. to you now. He's sitting in the back, uh, he or she, I guess. Yes. Yeah, and, and so they give you the keys and they say, take it for a spin. Well, the instructor <laughs> is taking you up and you learn how to stall the aircraft feel the the um, characteristics and then you come in the pattern and it's off to the races it's right. now time for you to start so you're those next three days you're trying to learn how to fly this aircraft right and so here's another thing i learned about you i think you must apart from being as accomplished as you are you must be a brave person right because now you're going up in something that you know is dangerous the U-2 doesn't have, you know, it has a reputation that it's a, a dangerous aircraft. And now you're telling me you're stalling the plane up in the sky? You, for most... Does that mean you turn it off? No, 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 no. Oh. So, so for all aircraft, you have to understand the flight characteristics, whether it's a Cessna 172 or it's a U-2. You have to understand that at slower speeds, especially in the landing phase, you have to feel how the aircraft is right and you have to understand if you're about to stall the aircraft at a high how to re how, how to get it back how to yeah recover yeah. the aircraft so we do this across the board so right. it's nothing unusual okay. but with the u2 um because it's single engine because of the long wingspans she's a little different yeah and she can be and the way she handles like up at altitude she flies like a normal plane right but when you get down to do landings right. and you do turns in the U two, it's different. You have to do a coordinated turn, even with a, even though she has a jet engine, um, 
she has adverse yaw effects, which is an aerodynamic turn. So if you turn without pushing on the rudder pedal, the nose will track in the opposite direction. Um, when you're coming in for a no-flap landing, for every knot that you are off airspeed fast, that's an extra potential 1,000 feet down the runway. So if you're six knots fast landing, there's a potential that you will not land on the runway. Right. So you have to be on point with the right, YouTube right. because she's, she's unforgiving down low. So um, that's the danger. So take us inside the cockpit. Yes. What is it like? You just, is it? So the cockpit. Tight? So the cockpit is like a, a telephone booth, a smart car. It, it doesn't have a stick like most jets. It has a yoke. The reason why it has a yoke is because if you inflate in your suit, your hands are stuck in this position. Oh. You can't grab a stick in the oh, middle. So that's the yoke. So you've got like, it's almost like a steering wheel. Yeah, it's almost like a steering yeah. wheel. So it's called a yoke. Okay. Um, when you're coming into land, it's not like a normal plane where you could set an attitude and the aircraft will easily land. Have you ever seen race car drivers when they show inside? Yeah. And the race car drivers, yeah, always, yeah. their hands are yeah. always moving. Yeah. And even in the turn, there's little correction. Yeah. Imagine that in the U2 with a pressure suit on. You don't have good visibility because of the helmet, and you're still you're still trying to fly this aircraft because there is a bicycle landing gear configuration. So it's not tricycle like your normal aircraft. You have one wheel in the front, a skateboard wheel in the back. You have a hundred and four point eight foot wingspan with no wheels on the wings, and you can't land it like a normal aircraft. You have to actually stall the aircraft at two feet to get the back uh -huh. wheel to land first. And when you're in the cockpit holding the nose up, you're constantly shifting and making these minor corrections to keep the nose straight, to keep it aligned on the runway. So that's very difficult. That's a lot going on. Right. That's like chewing bubblegum, patting your head, right, right. and patting a dog with right. your other hand. So you have to be very focused. You have to be very focused, and you have to be very coordinated. So right. a lot of people, helic helicopter pilots have the advantage because when we fly... We're flying with a stick, collective, and then we have rudder pedals. So it's similar to right. a U-2, whereas a jet pilot might take their feet off the rudder pedals because of the thrust and, you know. Um, I watched um, um, a takeoff of a U-2, and it seems to me that it once it takes off, boom, it's like a rocket. How long does it take? Is it like a normal when it climbs, or is it faster? It's So it's like going up <laughs> it's like a escalator elevator type thing so when you when you're going especially in a lighter aircraft so the aircraft total weight no more than 40,000 pounds um but when it's light you're basically about 30 degrees nose up so your altitude your attitude is about this high and you're just you're just up and up and up and up. you're up and up and up by the time you turn if i if i took off on the runway by the time I made a, a turn opposite direction of where I took off, I'm probably around 9,000 feet. It takes maybe, it doesn't take that long to get to 45,000 feet. It's pretty quick. It is? Yeah, unless air traffic control so is when you, you. when the U-2 takes off, is their mission to go straight up to 70,000? Or do they operate at lower altitude? No, typically it's to it's get straight up, up. Because we don't have weapons right. um, on our aircraft. Uh, people don't like what we do. So nobody's coming to see you up there. Yeah, so the reason why, back in the days of 1955, the reason why they wanted, the reason why Kelly Johnson designed an aircraft to 
go that high is to stay out of weapons range. And because the Russians knew we were doing something, but right. they couldn't prove it. We're like, plausible deniability. We right, can't right. do it until they shot down Gary Powers. Right. But um, to be out of range of weapons, because we don't have... Right. We don't have the systems. We're not dropping anything on anyone. And very few people have done this, but once you go up, when do you start to see the change from from like a regular airplane? Now you're in space. Where does that happen? So you usually start seeing the curvature of the Earth at, at about 50,000 feet. So wow. all those flat earthers, there is a curve. Yeah. I promise you. Right. <laughs> you can prove it. I've, I've seen it multiple yeah. times. It's It's beautiful. Right. And then when you're up there, then you level off. And now you're just roving. No, we, do, we don't level off. Oh, no? You keep the power at max. and Level off meaning that you're now straight as opposed to keep climbing. You're always, unless you're doing something specific in that aircraft, the power's always at max. You're always going up. And then you only go like for like a commercial airline speed wise, right? Yeah, we're, we're we're about four hundred and twenty knots ground speed, so we're subsonic. We're not yeah. with those wings. We're not going right. supersonic anywhere. Right. We're you know we're ripping parts of the aircraft if that happens. Um, I don't know if I asked you this, but how long does it take you to get to the seventy thousand? So, is it like twenty minutes or? I would say. If I can guess, it's been a while, probably about 40 or so. Oh, 40 minutes? Maybe. Yeah? Yeah, it depends. And then once you're up there, like, are you, I mean, I know there's, listen, this is recorded so we can, um, but once you're up there, are you circling or are you going somewhere? What so, What are you doing? So typically in the U-2, we have a mission. So yeah. before we take off, right. in that morning, we go and we sit down with... Um, intel intelligence officers we talk about the mission of the day we have what's called mission planners who are navigators in previous aircraft that actually flight plan for us right and so we know the route that we're going to fly but we just don't fly specific routes we do dynamic tasking so if we're out there flying on a mission or we hear someone that needs help we can change on a dime what we're doing and go do something else so we have an idea of what that mission is going to be for the day, and that's part of all the pre-flight planning. We talk to the maintenance crews to make sure the aircraft is up, if there's any issues, make sure all the sensors are good. And then we go to the physiological support squadron who maintains our suits, and we pre-breathe oxygen. We do pre-breathing about we have to be on oxygen an hour before we take off. So that helps. How I explain it is that Nitrogen loves to be in our body, but that also causes decompression sick, you know, decompression right. sickness like the chokes or if it gets in your brains neurologically. Breathing 100% oxygen kind of displaces that nitrogen because the body likes to absorb 100% oxygen. But does that better. mean you put the suit on for an hour before? Or you correct. You do? We yeah. do. We put the suit on an hour before the folks from the physiological support squadron come and check the suit, make sure it inflates, make sure there's no leaks because you can't have any leaks in the, right. in the suit. And they, they're the ones who actually integrate us into the aircraft. So they put us in the aircraft, they hook us up to the oxygen supply, to the vent, the right. air vent. Because you need stuff. help to get up there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. And the missions on the U-2, it's eight hours roughly, right? Roughly um, seven to eight hours? No, it, nine plus hours. Oh. Yes. That's why okay. I said you, you, you got to be... Yeah. <laughs> you got to have some so, mental fortitude. Okay, so I go to New York. 
from here, five hours. Yeah. And to me, it's like the most boring thing. I mean, I... I mean, I don't mind flying at all, but the boredom. So, because I, it's difficult to focus for me anyway. Really? What do you do? What are you doing for those nine hours? Are you working or are you just chilling? <laughs> so, it depends on the person you are. I will explain what I used to do. Yeah. Uh, a little bit. I'll give you. But do you have a job to do? That's what I mean. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going. So we're flying a particular mission, a sortie, to collect information right. to send to an end user. That's all in the intelligence. But who's group. operating all that? Is that done by someone else? So we have the centers that are operated by other people yeah. in different locations, right. not at the location we take off at. Right. We can do some things with the sensor in the cockpit. Right. But a lot of it is taken care of. There are things that we pick up why signal analysis that are, that are processed off the aircraft that go to the what we who we say the end user in near real time. Um, when we take off, say for like a mission, when I was in the Middle East, we take off. We would transit during that transit time. I would once I did my mission brief, briefed everything that had to be done. If I had some other time, perhaps I read part of a book. Oh perhaps yeah. I, yeah, perhaps you read. I, you can read up there. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> yes. Um, so you've got autopilot? We do have a. So yeah. typically above 60,000, yeah. we put on autopilot. Okay. Around 40, between oh, 45 so. and 60,000. Oh, okay. You, so for the user, for the, the listeners here, um, the higher up you go in altitude, the, cl- the narrow your margin is for overspeeding an aircraft i.e. maybe ripping the wings off, causing damage, to stalling the aircraft, which means running out of lift capability right. and falling out of the sky. Right. So the higher you get, the smaller the margin. So we call that the coffin corner. And so because it's such a small change, you want to use autopilot. Because if I, if I hand flew that, um, it would be exhausting. I can't... Right. It would... I'm not going to say it's difficult to maintain, but I'm not going to be able to maintain that level of preciseness right. at those altitudes. So it's an incredible amount of focus to do it's that. It's an incredible amount yeah. of focus, right? Okay, so I just wanted to make that clear yeah. to the listeners. Um, so autopilot, I don't, for me personally, I never talked much to, you have a what's called a mission on-scene commander who's an intel person in another location. I didn't usually talk to them very much. I would say, call me every hour. And then, you know, I used to play around and say, hey, tell me a joke. Like every hour, just tell me wow. a random joke. So they'd come on, ma'am, is everything good? Yes. And then they would tell me like some dad joke. A question I was going to ask right <laughs> here, you just answered it. Are you in constant touch with the ground? So once you get on station in your area of operation, you can reach out to the ground troops. So it depend, it would depend on who you're dealing with at the time. So there are... At that time, troops in contact, JTICs, Joint Troops in Contact. We can contact them and say, hey, I'm on station. Do you need anything? And we can do that. And they say, yes, we need this or that. And I can report that back and provide that information to them if need be. So the guys here always come up with questions for the guests. And Raphael here, who's fascinated by the U2 as I am. Oh. So he's got two questions. Okay. How difficult was it to land the U2 for the first time? How difficult was it? The first time you landed the U-2. <laughs> yes. 
Um, it was eye-opening because the amount of flying you have to do once you land it. The, the wings don't have wheels, so you have to keep the wings off the runway. And I remember a lot of times when you're interviewing, it's wing control. So the wings are teeter-tottering back and forth. And I, I found that very, very frustrating. Um, and his follow-up question, which I think you may have answered, after you land, what happens when you stop? Does it Right. So tip? once once you stop, you try to keep the wings up on the landing roll. You're going to slow down slow enough where eventually one of the wings are going to drop unless you have a great so the fuel fuel is in the wings yeah. so if you have great fuel balance it'll be amazing like the wings will stay wow stay straight and you're like you know you look at um the mobile and maintenance you're like that's right i did it yeah but eventually one of them will drop there are stalls there are what's called um stalls not stall strips excuse me they're um there are titanium platings underneath the wing, so when you're, if one of the wings drop, it's not going to damage the right. wing. It's going to wear down the titanium right. Right. Uh, strip. So, because um, it only has the wheels are very odd on this aircraft, right? Yeah, you have They're a main, not... you have a main wheel in the front. Yeah, and then in the back you have what's uh, a tail wheel, which is basically a neoprene wheel, like a skateboard wheel, a little bit bigger, and so, it's it was designed for. The lighter the aircraft, the higher it will go. Okay. This question you probably are not going to answer, but I'm going <laughs> okay, to ask I'm it anyway. Try. It's a huge aircraft. <clears throat> You've already said the cockpit is a sign of a phone booth. Mm -hmm. It's one engine, single engine. Yes. So what's in this? It, what what what's this, why is it so big? What's in it? It's all equipment that's in there. So you have yeah you have avionics. Um, you have pods that are attached to the wings that are avionics that. Typically, are your signal analysis type stuff. Um, the nose of the aircraft can change from uh, ASAR's nose, which basically looks at imagery in the form of Doppler. So all your weather pattern type stuff, when you look at the news, you could see it's in Doppler form. Uh, we use that for what's called sometimes measured signals. Was it um, Mazent type? So basically, it can look at a ground cover and then we can fly over an area one day, look at that ground cover, fly over the next day, look at that ground cover, and you can denote changes in it. So back in the days in the Middle East, if someone dug a hole to put something there, we can see those changes. Wow. So, and then the other nose that you could change to was electrical um, optical infrared, so EOIR, which was the sire's nose, which could take very clear pictures, but electrical optical or infrared. So yeah. I'll just leave it at that. And then the last camera we had was called an optical bar camera, which basically if you took a Polaroid camera up at altitude and took pictures, that's how clear the pictures are. We use that um, primarily on olive harvest missions in um, in the Middle East to kind of show that for Egypt and Israel that they're not building against each other. So those are those are known missions that we've done. How are you for time? Yeah, about 15 minutes. Yeah, okay. Um, flying a U-2 must be very physically and mentally demanding. Yes. Um, so how did you maintain the, the physical and mental fitness that is needed? 
Do you have to be very disciplined? Is that something you have to work at? Is that part of the job, maintaining that discipline? I think it's part of the job, maintaining that discipline. The physical aspect, um, for most people, for the listeners out there, I'm huge into fitness, um, martial arts. Uh, physical fitness is huge in my life as well as music. So when we would deploy, we typically in the U2 would fly once every three days. So we'd fly, we'd be off, we'd do ground duties, and then we'd be eligible to fly the next day. So I'd fly on my day off, I'm working out. And, you know, I'm working out, you know, anytime that I'm not flying because, you know, flying, you don't want to fly after being up at altitude, exposing your body to waves. You're fatigued and there's, you can do a lot of, it was, it was recommended that we do not work out after flying. So, um, yeah, physical fitness is huge. You want to be in good shape. You're sitting, you're sitting in the cockpit for long periods of time. It's like sitting in a car or sitting in an office, right? So you can have lumbar issues, back right. issues. So, right. you know, strength training for me is very important. And even then, I mean, I still have back soreness and stuff, but um, and a couple of hip replacements. But that was probably due to other factors as well. Right. So, but I'm pretty in shape still yeah no you certainly are <laughs> um am i right in thinking now we're going to make Raphael's day here am i right in thinking you were a consultant on the spielberg movie bridge of spies I or, was, or a, a, not a consultant maybe it's not the right word an advisor okay so on bridge of spies <laughs> the answer the short answer is yes i was on the sh on the movie set uh, my job at the time myself and another um maintenance uh maintenance guy we were there to provide the area and the access and the aircraft for them to shoot the movie so, so did we, you meet tom hanks and spielberg and all those people tom hanks wasn't there because he wasn't part of the scenes um i definitely met spielberg um i got to like watch him work yeah um i got to tell him no in an aircraft or, you know in a mobile car twice you did i did you told him off? No, no. I I told him no. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, um, for those who don't know, the U two when it lands, it has a chase car behind it. Oh, right. Right. So they're and they're called the mobile. And so, quick story: this particular scene, the aircraft took off, which was a training mission by one of my buddies. Um, they had a whole bunch of cameras on the runway to to take the shots while my friend was doing his training mission. The actual mobile who was supposed to be with the aircraft had some malfunction, and I had to act as the mobile. And so Spielberg was in the car with me. And so as soon as the aircraft took off, they got the shots, but Steven Spielberg was like, hey, can you drive me to the next set? And I said, no, sir, I can't because I'm tethered to this aircraft until the other mobile gets back. And then he said, he said, it's okay, I'll just get out and walk. I go, no, sir, you can't just walk out on the active runway. So he got really quiet with me. Wow. And and in my mind, I was like, I just told Steven Spielberg no twice. Right. And so, and I'm sure so, he appreciated that. No, but when the aircraft came to land, um, I mobiled. He was in the car. He was quiet because I knew he was a little irritated. But he took out his phone because he was recording all of it. And once the aircraft landed, my other friend came in. All of us were on the runway, took off, and then Steven Spielberg got really excited. He was like, that was awesome. 
like because we were really tight. You could smell the jet fuel. Right. You can hear the sound. You could feel the heat. He was so excited. He's like, this was the best. Meryl, I'm so glad you did this. Uh, and I'm like, I went from like zero to hero in about right. 30 seconds. <laughs> so for those who don't know the movie Bridges, we don't have time to get into it. Just look it up. But it's about a U2, obviously. Yes. Um, what did you think of the film? Was it realistic? From okay, so Bridge of Spies was about Gary Powers getting shot down, but also the exchange between um, Gary Powers and the other the Russian spy. His name escapes me right now, and that yeah. whole thing with the lawyer. Yeah. Um, oh, I thought it was accurate because there were many folks at Beale who had the input into yeah, and older pilots at the time. So right. I said my my pilot number seven eight eight. One of the pilots that was inputting into the whole ejection sequence and how the plane would break apart, I mean, his pilot number is three-something. So he's been around for a long time. Um, Bill Williams is his name. And uh, great pilot, um, great person, and very knowledgeable. We, we, we need to do like a five-part series <laughs> Because we haven't finished part two, but we're oh, gonna we we're, we're gonna jump to part three. So you were prepared to leave the military, just because I think it's important that we know how successful you were after the U two as well. So you were prepared to leave the military to pursue other things for the sake of of your family, and a retired lieutenant general, John Callahan, who was the former director of Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, heard about this and he decided that the Air Force could not lose you, and he did something about it. So could you yeah. briefly touch on that, and then what you did to from there to the end of your military service? Right, so this was... So this, this was during a time where I had... I was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force, and I had just been given orders, what they call a 365 order to Afghanistan in a non-flying billet. It's called a non-vol assignment. We all get them. It's part of the business of the Air Force and all other military branches of service. I had three days to accept the orders or turn them down and separate from the military. I turned it down because my son had just turned two years old, and I realized that my son would need me more than the Air Force. I was making a family decision. The Air Force was making a business decision, so I was okay with that. We're going to fast forward six months, about four months later, the colonel board results come out, and I get picked up for colonel. So because I turned down these orders, it, it started the process. I couldn't separate because I had enough. I had over 20 years in. So it started a retirement process. So I was scheduled to retire. I made colonel. I was still scheduled to retire. I had retirement orders. Fast forward again a couple of months later, I'm about to start terminal leave and I'm on I'm off I'm on vacation doing something. I'm biking and I get a call from the wing office and I answer and they say, Hey, um, General Shanahan, who was my boss's boss, because I worked for the wing commander. At that time he was a two star. They said he wanted to speak to me. And I was like, About what? And they're like, about you. And I said, okay. Um, a couple of days later, I had a conversation with him on a secure line. And he just wanted to talk to me. General Shanahan didn't know me from anything. All he saw was my record. 
and he saw the fact that I had a line number to colonel, but I had a retirement number to retire at the end of the year. And he saw my record, and I think he just asked a question, why is she retiring? And so he wanted to speak to me. And I, and I told him, I said, look, I understand what the Air Force wants to do. I understand it's business, but I'm picking my family over it, and I can do that. And so we talked for 33 minutes, I remember. And at the end of the conversation, he goes, well, there's probably nothing I could do for you. I said, he said, but we'll be in touch. He gave some like cryptic thing. And I said, okay. That evening, well, the next day, I got called in by my wing commander. And he said, I'm going to show you something. This is not for public display. He showed me the email that this two-star, and he was actually going to be going to the Pentagon because he had just pinned on his, he was going to put on his third star. This two-star wrote to the chief of staff of the Air Force of why they should retain me in the military. And he went to bat for me. And they decided in this line of emails, the chief of staff of the Air Force told the A-1 who's in charge of personnel, who's a one-star, can we find Merrill another job? And he says, yes, based on her um, experience right now, we can send her to the Pentagon. And so that's what happened. And it made me realize um, a couple of things. Because before all this happened, I talked to a couple of mentors of mine. And I got the lay of the land because I really didn't understand that, you know, we talk about the push for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's the same in the military. You know, we want people that are very diverse backgrounds around the table. And in the Air Force in particular, I can't speak for other services, it's not very diverse at the higher levels. At the 06 and above level, at the time that I was, that this was all going on, if I had stayed, if I didn't stay in, there was only going to be one black female who was a pilot at the 06 and above level, and she was a two-star, and I knew her personally. I would have been the second one. The person that was going to be maybe being groomed behind me, if they even made it to that point, was about five to seven years behind me. So you don't have the pool to draw from people if you want even a diverse background because they don't have the experience. You know, for women, maybe family <laughs> becomes an, a priority for us. For some, it doesn't. Um, all these things happen, and there's not many of us to begin with. So because of that, you know, the military was about this inclusion thing, and they were just going to let me go to the wayside. And so this two-star, General Shanahan, he, he believed in the vision of the chief of staff of the Air Force, and he said, I'm going to go to bat for her. And that showed me that here are people out there who walk in the same direction, and he's a white male, and we still keep in touch to this day, and he became my mentor at the Pentagon. But you have to find these people, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, and their background, who walk in the same direction as right. you, who believe in the power of diversity. And it's not about just putting anyone in there. It's about putting the right people in there, but to have these different opinions, because it makes us stronger, it makes us better. So that's my pitch right there. And you went on to take on which we don't have time for, but a series of pretty high-profile jobs. So my, um, Yeah, that was my last job was as the, ins 
the director for inspections for the inspector general. So I went there. Um, I had not pinned on colonel yet, but they frocked me to colonel to sit in the seat. Right. And I worked for a three-star. And, you know, I was in charge of inspections across the entire Air Force. Um, and it, I mean, it was amazing. My office, my staff was incredibly diverse from women to just just across and the And where world. was that? That was at the Pentagon. At the Pentagon? Yes. So you lived in D.C.? I lived in D.C. for yeah. my last two years in the yeah. military. So it was, um, it was great. I mean, the, my, my folks were great. My bosses were great. I learned a lot about the Pentagon. I, were, I learned a lot about networking because at that point when you're a colonel, you have to be able to network to get things done, whether it's, you know, instructions, anything bureaucratic, just a signature. And yeah. so I did pretty well navigating in that arena of 26,000 people. I mean, it was it was a great experience. And but, then I got, you know, General Shanahan, who was a three-star at that time, you know, we would have lunch, and he would mentor me, and he'd give me the lay of the land, and he, he, was, that, he was that person in my corner, which was very important in that building. The one thing I've learned about senior military officers, and I just know the American system, maybe the British system is the same, but senior military officers are like top business leaders. I mean, you have to... Yes. They're like CEOs of companies, and they're very accomplished, and... Manage you manage a lot of people, right? I read how many people are under your command. It was a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's one of those things where, as I went to some of the directors, or not not directors, some of the um, like my general was a three star. Some of the other people in that building, I would just go meet certain people, and I get on their calendars just to talk with them, right? And just to build a relationship. Right. And I learned that was very helpful right. in terms of us pushing policy through and getting other things right. done. So It's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty – I was glad to be able to have that experience. Well, we can't keep you here all day, although I'd love to. So I mean, we're going to buzz through a few things I want to talk just very quick. So tell us – give us the elevator pitch of your book because people can find it very easily. It's called Shatter the Sky. What going to the stratosphere taught me about self-worth, sacrifice, and discipline. It talks about my life from – the Bronx to my Navy days, my Air Force days, and the next mission. Um, it talks about the lessons that I've learned throughout my life and the ups and downs and how I learned and how I grew through all of those processes. From and the book is very easily found on Amazon or anywhere else. Absolutely. Or Audible if you want to. Audible? Did you, did you voice it? I did voice did? it, and there's a couple of little extras in there. Yeah, yeah. I bet the voice is good. I, <laughs> I bet you put, some, you put some emphasis in that. You then very quickly become a television personality, as we talked on Tough as Nails. Elevator pitch on that. What did that teach you, that show? Okay, Tough as Nails is a show by Phil Kogan where they take 12 people from the trades and we go against each other in teams and as individuals for our prize, prizes, money, and honor. And uh, what it told me is that I do not quit. You uh -huh. could throw me into any situation. I mean, here's, you know, here's this pilot helping build a, a garage or here's this pilot like breaking rocks. Um Put me into any challenge, and I'm ready, and I'm up for the task, and I will not quit until my body fails. So Did that's you enjoy what they the learned. show? Did you enjoy it? Ah, uh, immensely. It was one of the it yeah. was one of the best experiences. We filmed during COVID, which yeah. was interesting, and then they aired it in 2021, and my life changed. 
it it changed. They you became a movie star. Well, ish, <laughs> ish, more ish than yeah. anything. But uh, was no. it difficult physically and mentally? Was it a difficult challenge? It was. It was difficult physically, just due to the fact that we we couldn't talk to each other unless we were on camera. Right. And so, and also during that time, I was, and this didn't stop me because they knew. I had a lot of hip pain. I had my right hip replaced um, last year. So, but I knew I wanted to do the show. I was scared that they wouldn't take me because of the hip pain. And right. I was like, I'll work through all that. I don't care. Yeah. So, um, and you couldn't take any medication for it because strict drug tests yeah. across. So, yeah, um, yeah I, I loved it. I loved the challenges. I was, un there were times I was incredibly uncomfortable because these were, these are trade type events um so whether it's building something in and you know with carpentry or whether it was um moving hay or whether it was putting something together we had you had to work through it and so it challenged me and i and i loved it i, yeah. I did well so yeah. it was fun then the next accomplishment, you're represented by the harry walker agency now anybody who doesn't know that's one of the top speaking agencies so you're a motivational speaker. Who do you speak to? Corporations, um, business spoke, people. Yeah, I've spoken to Fortune 500 companies from uh, Meta, uh, Dell Technologies, uh, Kitty Hawk Aeronautics, Lockheed Martin. Um, I've spoken to schools, charter schools, yeah. um, in Minnesota, and I also speak to elementary schools in Rancho Cordova. So I speak the full gambit. Um, I've, you know, I love it. I love having the ability to speak at big companies with the, where I'm able to go to smaller areas and underserved areas and right. talking and motivating kids and other adults to be the best version of themselves. That's right. why I'm a trainer. That's why I'm a speaker. I love that part. And then let's just quickly talk about your training. Who is it you train? I used to work at a gym and I left the gym area and i train out of my house now so yeah. i have a handful of clients that came with me from the gym yeah um and they're they're typically older but i use fitness even in my motivational speaking yeah. when i go to a school yeah if the kids meet me they're going to be doing push-ups right so we're going to have fun we're going to have a good time but for my clients most of my clients have been with me at least six years yeah and you know my house has everything from a rack to you know we do anything and then finally, I, I met you at the STEM event put on by the Air Show. And let's just give a quick, a little quick chat, a plug or whatever for Absolutely. the Air Show. Absolutely. Although it'll be over by the time this airs. But um, the California Capital Air Show is about to happen. Yes. I met you at the STEM event. The STEM event is for young people that are interested in the sciences or that might want to be a pilot, right. who might want to be into AI. Um, how important is that to you, those kind of events with those kind of kids? It's incredibly important for me. I see, especially for kids in underserved communities, I think it's an untapped resource. I think companies that are big companies, Fortune 500 companies, are quick to go overseas somewhere and you know outsource. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we have kids here who are incredibly bright and intelligent and they just need a chance some wi-fi and maybe some tools to bring out these abilities that they have i i think it's untapped and i think kids 
in STEM, whether it's turning wrenches, whether it's figuring out math problems, there is a need for that. And we need to look at, at all these kids because they bring a lot to the table. And What I think they need, because if you go back to when you were seven and you wanted to be an astronaut and actually be in at that STEM event, what they need is to meet people like you. Absolutely. That's what they need. Yes. to see that they actually meet you in real life. They hear your story that you were once that seven-year-old and look at you today and just meeting you, you inspire them. So just we're going to get to the end, I promise. We're, we're almost <laughs> okay. at the end. So what personally drives you? Now we get to the difficult question. Ooh, what personally drives me? Man, what personally drives me right now, um, the... My kids, my kids drive me, my yeah. kids, so they could see, like I could be, you know, in my book I write, be the person that kids, you know, look up to. Right. And, yeah, I can't, I'm not going to quit because of my kids, because I don't expect them to quit. So I hold myself to a higher standard than I hold my children. And, you know, one of my, my youngest child, um, she's adopted. And for her, when she came into our household, I remember we were looking at Doc McStuffins, and she loved animals. And I said, do you want to be a vet when you grow up? And she goes, oh, that's too hard. And that just took me by surprise. And I kind of said, what are you talking about? I'm like, you like animals, blah, 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 blah. And now, fast forward about over three years later, she wants to be a vet. Yeah. She loves animals. She wants. So the power of having a stable home, some focus, some discipline, and parents who are who are, are focused on things, even they're, even if they're small, even if it's a small goal, it's a big impact on children. And for her, I mean, I just did a post about her and just the fact now that she's doing basketball. Um, I took her to a friend's house to look at some chickens and some goats this weekend. I'm going to take her to another place, vet the exposure. Right. That is what's going to change the child, to give them hope and to give them... so. If she's not quitting, I'm not quitting. Right, right. <laughs> what mistakes have you made that you're willing plenty. to admit anyway? I made plenty. I made, yeah. a, I made a parent fail last week uh, trying to teach my child multiplication. <laughs> um, what mistakes did I make? I mean, I think one of the biggest... Okay, for the audience, I didn't become an astronaut yet, right? So I got to fly. I mean, being an astronaut is a cherry on the top. I became a YouTube pilot. I've flown at the edge of space. It's amazing. I look back at my life and I'm like, this was awesome. It was. But I, and, but I still got much more to go. Yeah. So you could say the failure, if you really call it a failure, is okay, I didn't make it to be an astronaut because I didn't go to test pilot school for the, for the most part. But I don't regret it because look at all the other amazing stuff I did and the influence that I have on the kids coming up, which they need more than anything, I'll take it. So I... You know, I mean, little mistakes here, party too much in college, um, maybe ran my mouth off a little bit too much in high school, but it all came right. at the end. This, well, you did very well for yourself. Yeah, it built who I am, so yeah. I, I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad at the little mistakes. It made me grow. So you attained, a, a, you know, a high rank in the military. Yes. A lot of respect. Everybody calls you mom and snaps too and salutes. <laughs> Do you think you're born a leader or do you have to learn to be a leader? I think there's a little bit of both. Yeah. I think some people have a propensity to 
be able to tell a story or to connect with people in a certain level. But that doesn't mean that you can't read some leadership books and glean some tools from those areas to help enhance what you already have. There are some people who are introverted and quiet. So how do you turn that around to become this this leader that reaches out? You know, you can get some from books, but you can also say, well, when I give energy to people, it wears me out. So I'm a, most people don't think I'm introverted, but probably just a, a little bit. But you have to overcome that fear because you have to know on the back end, again, in my mind, I want to make everyone the best version of themselves. So I, I think I had some skills to be a good leader, but I've definitely read some books like Simon Sinek. I've, um, I haven't read Jocko's book yet. It's on my shelf to read. Um, I've read a couple of other leadership books, and I've done Air Command and Staff College, Air War College, looked at other leadership principles that have helped inform my decision and make me more well-rounded. And you mentioned Jocko. You mean uh, the podcast Jocko, right? Um, the well, Navy he came SEAL? Out, the yes, Navy he came SEAL out guy. with Extreme Leadership. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so... Uh, his I, podcasts are four hours, by the way. Yes. If you listen to them. <laughs> well, ours is going min- to... A, a, a short podcast with him is two hours. But three hours is probably the average. Yeah. And finally, in th- in this little thing, and then we'll get to our last section, what is your, I don't know how you're going to answer this one, but what is your proudest accomplishment? My proudest, can I, can I scale them? My, sure. One of my proudest accomplishments, I mean, which I didn't realize at the time, is being a, a mom. So having my son, I didn't think I was going to have kids. Right. And now having a daughter, I mean, yeah. That is to teach youth that's, and to be responsible for them. It's, it's exciting and terrifying at the same time because you don't know how they're going to turn out. Um, my other accomplishment is that I'm just more than my military career. That, that's huge. Some people, when they retire and they transition, they just it's like peaking in high school. Right. That's all they live. And right. They live in that time. And then that's it. Yeah. That's it. For me, I feel like the military part is is getting smaller, and this new life of yeah. of inspiring and motivating people. Yeah. I agree with you. F- for me, that's a huge accomplishment because yeah. a lot of people can't s- flip like that. Right, they get stuck. No, so I I enjoy that. I mean, I could say the normal okay, flying U twos, doing all this. I love that, but to be multifaceted and to be good at a lot of things. And it could be said the best is yet to come, right? Well, it's going to be said yeah. the best is yet to come. <laughs> so now I'm going to tempt you with our quick fire round. This will be quick. So what is one word others would use to describe you? Unicorn. What is one word you would use to describe yourself? <laughs> um, force of nature. If you could be a person for a day besides yourself, who would that be and why? Does it have to be a a real person? Yeah, no. (laughs) I'd be Kirk. Kirk, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That would be cool, right? That'd be awesome. What's your biggest pet peeve? Making excuses. What is one app on your phone that you cannot live without today? 
If I took it away. Well, if you took my phone away? No, if I took one app. What one app that I cannot take away. Mine, I'll tell you mine. Mine I, is navigation. Oh no, I'll take out a, I'll take out a map any day. Yeah. Don't, don't take my Instagram away. Instagram? <laughs> yeah. If I got into your car and I turned on the radio, what am I gonna hear? You're gonna probably hear some R and B or some rap music, depending yeah. on my mood. And two more. What is the biggest lesson you learned from serving in the military? Biggest lesson. Sacrifice before self. And finally, what is the biggest lesson you learned from your mother? Never quit. Never quit. Well, I have to say, it's. I was very nervous. I, yeah, I, I, told, I just was. I told these guys this morning that I'm very nervous because I've spoken to a lot of people. I don't know, there's something about you that is so accomplished, in my mind anyway, that it's just, it's very inspirational. So we have been speaking with Colonel Retired Merrill Tengerstahl, US Air Force. Colonel Tengerstahl, I'm gonna offer you that respect. Thank you so much for being here. I know you're a very busy person. And most importantly, thank you for everything that you have done in service to this country. And I certainly wish you the greatest of success with whatever comes next for you, which we're gonna hear from you. Thank you so much for having me. And this is not our last conversation, by the way. (laughs) So there you have it, folks. Thank you for listening. Please visit the website, which is www.ranchocordovapodcast.org, where you can listen to past shows. Please send us any comments or show suggestions you may have. And my name is Charles Lego, and until next time.